0: Welcome to the Words Matter Podcast, the Course Health Series. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter Podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So we continue our journey into the Course Health book, And this time I'm talking again with Dr. Samantha Copeland about her chapter 6, which is titled The Guidelines Challenge. Chapter 6 closes part 1 of the book, The Philosophical Framework, and the next episode, episode 7, represents part 2 of the book, which is the clinical application, where quite rightly I'll be speaking with Christine Price about her experience as a patient of complexity and her persistent pain. So in this episode, Samantha and I talk about the original aims and purpose of clinical guidelines and how they were developed to operationalize evidence-based medicine. We talk about the ontological and epistemological assumptions around causation that are built into guidelines. We discuss the tension between evidence-based guidelines and a dispositional view of causality for understanding health, disease and the effectiveness, or not, of healthcare interventions. We talk about the sorts of evidence and methods which make up clinical guidelines and the major problems and conflicts experienced by clinicians when implementing these in the care of individual patients. We talk about how guidelines should be developed to account for the particulars of the individual patients, meaning we need not just methodological pluralism, but a revised ontology of causation. We talk about the different ways that guidelines can be utilised or viewed by clinicians and the integration of guidelines with expertise, clinical judgement and decision making. Finally, we talk about the lessons learned from the Oxford Guidelines Challenge Conference, of which Samantha was a fundamental part of. And in the show notes, I've linked an editorial paper written by Samantha and colleagues, which outlines the major problems and positions presented in relation to guidelines and how dispositionist theory might provide some solutions to enable the better development and utilisation of evidence-based guidelines for person-centred care. So this episode has it all, evidence-based practice, clinical reasoning, clinical judgment, ethics, and Samantha even touched on AI, and she does a fantastic job in articulating hers and the course health's vision of evidence-based guidelines. So I bring you Dr. Samantha Copeland. So Samantha welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me uh it's exciting to to get to do two of these.
0: (laughs) Rani gets to do three I think maybe even four I'm not sure but
1: yeah yeah she's uh well she's it's it's her thing and uh (laughs) and and definitely we were following her lead um in the philosophy of the book um and uh she's been you know such a a great guiding principle of this whole project, like bringing the network together and really making connections amongst people and bringing ontology to the far corners of practice in ways Then, you know, when I first signed on to the project, I, I wondered how it would go. And I was like, this is a really interesting approach uh, to philosophy and to medicine. And, uh, and, and it really worked. Yeah, and so I've been super impressed with everything she's managed to pull off with this project. Mm.
0: You know, the the way that it's gotten clinicians to engage with philosophy, you know, even the fact that, you know, a a clinician might be aware of something called ontology, or there's a thing, or there's a range of ways of looking at the world or knowledge, which really you only encounter, I only encounter during my PhD, you don't really kind of touch on the subjects unless you're really going to pursue a, a a. you know, there's a real intellectual or, or research purpose. But for clinicians and, you know, just going going by Twitter and social media and, and comments from colleagues, it seems like there is a there's been a real, I suppose appetite, and we talked about this in the first episode, of how to use frameworks or how to give some kind of language or explanatory framework or conceptual framework to some of the problems encountered in practice.
1: Mm-hmm. Words are interesting that way, right? You know, like people have a feeling before, often before they have the words to, to really express it. And when you find a language that helps you say something that you've been wanting to say, or even helps you puzzle through. So one one nice thing about philosophy as a language and as a kind of technique or way of looking at the world is that it it gives you a way to to ask those questions and to uh, kind of puzzle through the problems. It, and it's just from a different perspective right you think about the problems in different ways so instead of how am i going to deal with this right now it's well what is the problem you know and 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 we're in, we're annoying in some ways like you know two year olds mm-hmm. asking why all the time um but people do Philosophy all the time. They they have these beliefs that ground why they do things and the choices that they make. They don't make things blindly. Um, people are very rational, although they don't always talk about their own rationality or their reasoning processes. And so, giving people an opportunity to do that. Um, so, I, I teach. Yeah, full disclosure: I teach ethics in the technical university now, <laughs> and and this is something that comes up with students. Right, one of the first things I try to get across to them is that they they are doing this philosophy when they're doing science, you know, in their very practice and the choices they make about their methods. They're making choices about what kinds of results should be out in the world. They're making choices about what kinds of science has social value and is important. Um, They're making all of these choices that are actually not just choices about methods. They're choices about all sorts of other things. And, And so once you start looking at the impact of your choices and also what grounds them, why you make those choices? Why do you think that's the right method? And and those people, oh, oh, well, I guess it's because of this, right? And then you they try to, and philosophy gives them a language to try and explain those things, um, and it's hard to do in in everyday language sometimes.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think so. I think there's that awareness of one's own assumptions and beliefs around practice and knowledge, which the, which the book and hopefully the podcast will will uh, promote or. or Going to move clinicians to thinking that way. But I think, in terms of evidence in in today's episode, your chapter six on the guideline challenge, some of those assumptions which are built into guidelines that, and in fact, all evidence or all, I suppose, quantitative or or post positively situated research, where as a student or a clinician, you don't even know that there are assumptions, that science has a, a set of assumptions. And you only become aware of them when you're presented with some other mm. theories, in, in this case with causation. You, you know, it's it's completely new way of thinking.
1: And, and imagination is, uh, is such a key thing in, in progress and change, right? You can't change something unless you can imagine it being different. And so as long as you aren't given the, the kind of space or the opportunity to imagine it differently... then, then you, you, you may not do so. You may not think there's any other way to do it. And, uh, and often, uh, things like evidence and things like rules are presented to us as unchangeable entities. These simply are, these are true And, and you can't just change the truth. And, um, But it's not that we want to change the truth. It's just that there's different ways of using the truth. There's different ways of accessing the truth. There's different kinds of truths out there that might be important. And uh, when you open up those possibilities, then all of a sudden we can imagine things differently. Um, So, and I think people have the power to do that. They just aren't often given the space or, um, uh, or the, or the, uh, uh, like, I don't know what to think of it. Like, um, the actual pictures to imagine, right? You know, when you present someone with an alternative, it it, so dispositionalism is such a, what it does is really uh, question so many aspects of the way we reason about causality and the way we use causality in practice um, that it opens up all of these questions and it gives us an alternative way of thinking. And whether or not people have all agreed on dispositionalism being the right way of thinking or the ultimate causality, They've, they've had to debate it, you know, they've had to consider that, okay, what if this is the case, then what would it lead us to do in practice? And, and a lot of the things that it would lead us to change in practice, like paying more attention to the singular patient, really considering different kinds of evidence, not just as uh, data that can be aggregated, but as, you know, raising alternative ways of thinking about the patient. In itself, right? So it's not just add the bio plus the psycho plus the social, it's actually think about how those things relate to each other and that whole and how complex it is. Um, What dispositionalism really does is make us look at the relationships between things. So not just the kind of data we have or the facts about the matter, but how those things relate to each other. And that opens up a whole new space of consideration. Um, and a different way of thinking about holism and complexity. And because of that, what it does is it touches on things that, first of all, clinicians have identified as wanting to be able to talk about. They want to talk about the relationships between things. They want to talk about the unique features of their patient. And they want to be able to deal with that. Um, but the evidence for those relationships isn't out there. There's lots of evidence about the symptoms and the you know certain profiles, but when you get a case of comorbidity, for example, and you have these interactions, um, you have to think about the relationships between the one condition and the other condition, and that space is really left empty by our current ways of thinking about evidence. And that space is clearly identified in dispositionalism as being key and the place we need to focus. And so I think as a theory, it's really interrelated with the kinds of questions that practice is raising every day and offers a different way of, of addressing those questions or a way at all of addressing those questions, whereas our other theories leave them, we can't even ask them.
0: Completely. And I think that's such the appealing thing is that as warm towards things like evidence-based practice that clinicians might be it it doesn't always kind of feel right or it doesn't it jars a bit and you know they the clinicians want to utilize evidence but they want to kind of recognize the individuality of their patients they're not quite sure how to reconcile those two things some of the explanatory or the theoretical frameworks which which are out there like the biopsychosocial model or kind of conceptual frameworks of person-centered care they kind of they help a little bit, but they don't really piece it all together. And so like you said, there's a real gap in the market or gap in the theory, if you like, to help clinicians begin to to create this tapestry of, of I don't know, but tapestry is probably the wrong word. I just quite fancy using it, but there's this framework by which to kind of understand what's going on with their patients.
1: Well, it's something in between, right? It, it, this is what they're actually practicing. This is the thing, right? What, what is actually going on in practice when clinicians actually care and treat their patients is they are living in this in-between world. <laughs> this is what I tried to kind of point out in the chapter, right? So we have good intentions on both sides. You know, on one side, we want to trust people So we have to build relationships with them. We have authority figures. We learn from each other in practice. A lot of medical practice is tacit knowledge, so it can only really be communicated by doing, right? So you have to train, you have to work with people, you have to learn from them. So it's very personal and it's very unique and individual and subjective in many ways. And that's a lot of practices like that. And we want that in a lot of ways because that's how we learn, you know, how to practice medicine, but EVM has good reasons for coming in, right? We also don't want to just rely on certain authority figures. We don't want, you know, hierarchies within our hospitals to determine which practice is being uh, Hmm. played out in that hospital, right? We want it to be a standardized, objectively good way of going about medicine (laughs) And, and doctors want to know what that is, right? They would like some guidance, but you also can't make that rule Universal, because medicine is going to always be this kind of practice, and so so physicians are really pulled at from two directions um, all the time. And when they when they're dealing with patients, they have to use evidence that has to be created in a certain way. You know, population studies are the best we have for most treatments. Right, this is the best kind of evidence we can acquire. And they need to be able to draw from that, but then they're faced with also the particularities of each situation and how to make those connections. And that's what's that's what's missing <laughs> in in what they have available to them mm. as resources. And the one problem with uh, evidence based language as as it's become policy, and as we've relied more and more on these large scale studies and we need funding for those studies. They dominate the whole structure of our research efforts, et cetera. Um, the more we rely on that, the more we end up with only evidence that allows us to create rules to follow and the, the wider that gap gets between what, phys- what clinicians actually have to do in practice and what they're given to use. And So so for me, the idea of like why not see if guidelines can occupy that space? Right. Can we create that in between space where that kind of interaction between the clinician and their judgment and the evidence and the facts um, that are generally true and that we the, the things we know to be true? How do we get those to actually interact and engage, right? And Elena's kind of worked on the scientific aspect of that through mechanistic evidence, right? That we need clinicians to be actively contributing this kind of evidence to get that flow going. But it can happen in the world of guidelines. And it does. Attempts are being made, right? We're bringing more and more actual clinician um, advice and judgment into play when we develop guidelines.
0: And patients too.
1: Patients too, absolutely. We've got patients um, involved in the whole process, right? And all through the process. Um, so I don't think it's that it's we need to imagine an entirely different thing. I think we just need to, we need to get back to what guidelines are for um, and how they are, when they are useful and why they are useful, and just be really clear about what kinds of guidelines we might be dealing with. And I think a, a better resource could be developed for clinicians. I feel like they're they're pushing towards making guidelines into that kind of better resource. Now you have decision trees instead of a single guideline, right? This is being built into
0: it. I'm imagining that most clinicians and listeners will be familiar familiar with guidelines to a greater or lesser extent, um, depending on their practice. So in the physical therapies there's a few key guidelines the low back pain guidelines of the UK and and the US and there's some other European ones that are pretty well known I'm sure if you're in cardiology you've got a whole set of different clinical guidelines so but maybe just give a quick kind of whistle stop tour or maybe even how the the guidelines were a product of evidence-based medicine where did they come from and so they they obviously were developed to serve a particular purpose or implement EBM in some way
1: Well, we want two things from EBM. We want uh, kind of a standardization of access to good care, right? So that uh, good care is not dependent on the contingencies of whatever hospital or area you're at. So we want to be able to standardize what counts as good care. And we also want to be able to get and use good evidence for what is good care and give physicians access to that evidence, right? So that they can base their decisions on good evidence. So there's two, you know, big questions there, what's good care (laughs) and what is good evidence. (laughs) And these are actually quite huge questions. Um, And this is, this is the point of the debate that's been happening since EBM came into play, right? So clinical judgment, did, did, did it fall out of EBM or not, right? The early EBM proponents actually don't, didn't want clinical judgment to drop out. They wanted clinical judgment to have access to good evidence and be based on that rather than whose advice they should be following because of their job or wherever they are, or their teacher, you know, these other reasons, these non-care-based reasons, right? That that people were influencing decisions that were being made. But in order to get that access to that evidence, I mean, they quickly found out uh, that doctors just can't read all those articles. And that was before you know, the amount of articles that are being published now. And that was way back when, you know, it was actually reasonable to kind of try and <laughs> access all of the articles on something.
0: Before PubMed.
1: Oh, right. You know, and, uh, and the, those kinds of debat- databases like PubMed was developed in order to enable doctors to access the kind of evidence that they would need. But no doctor has that kind of time to look at the evidence, to assess the evidence. Not all of them have the skills you know, as much as you try to train them into how do how do you assess different clinical trials, how many, like that is there's a reason why people do that as their job, right? It is it is a whole skill set in itself. So you get things like Cochrane, where you do systematic reviews to make the evidence more accessible. And then if we have this evidence, then we ought to be able to base treatment plans on it that everyone should. Want to follow. And well, now this is really attractive when it comes to policy, isn't it? When we have rules we can follow. Plus, we have standards by which we can judge the practice of doctors. So we can tell whether or not good care is being delivered because we have this guideline that gives us this standard by which we can assess good care. And now you have the kind of standardization of standardization, right? (laughs) And this is, we've, we've gone a little too far in that direction. And part of the reason is because of the convenience and the necessity for that kind of level of organization. We're talking about massive institutions with multiple workers. We do want to standardize care. We do, doctors do want to know what's going to count as good care. They want to know how they're going to be judged. And so giving them a guideline helps them say, okay, this is the kind of practice I have to give, you know, in order to give good care. But then increasingly they're finding, well, given my clinical judgment, good care would actually require me to divert from this guideline in this case. So what I talk about in the chapter is this idea of rule utilitarianism versus act utilitarianism. So if a guideline is is a rule, if it's a good rule overall, then you apply it in every case. And statistically speaking, let's say, most of the people you apply it to do better than they would if you did not apply the rule. That's how you know it's a good rule. Right? So there's, there's always a few people left out in that equation, right? There's always a few people who didn't get the best care according to that rule. But if most of the people got the best care according to that rule, then it's a good rule to follow on average. But it's not. It's not for that person who didn't get the good care. And the clinician caring for that person has to then make a different decision. They have to decide if the rule should be applied in this case. So now we don't have a rule anymore. Now, all of a sudden we have to decide based on the evidence, whether the rule is any good. And the clinician has to take that step back. And that's where the gap exists. Now they're left on their own. They're left swimming because they don't have that space. They don't have the granted authority to make that kind of decision without the guideline. They have to justify their decision, but they're not given the tools and the resources all the time to do that. And you see this in reflections. So there's a a quotation by Steven Tyerman in my chapter, where he talks about um, the the Montgomery case and this kind of other considerations that need to be taken into account, because we can't just judge a clinician on whether or not they follow the rule, because the rule doesn't always apply, and and they know better, they they know enough about their patient and enough enough about their situation to know or to at least be like, yeah, maybe in this case, you know, <laughs> so so rule utilitarianism can't be the way that we think about guidelines. It shouldn't be, and but it is. That's the public policy way of using guidelines. That's why we use guidelines.
0: And is that the, is that the, the tram line term mm-hmm. where they're just these fixed paths of rules which you cannot deviate from?
1: Yeah, and and you can, if you're using them in a kind of public policy or public health manner, you can't, right? Immunisation is one of those cases. We're going to look at this very closely in the next couple of years. You don't get herd immunity if you don't have enough people immunized. And so this is why mandating vaccines comes into play, because it's the kind of rule that if not, if you don't apply it in all cases, even the few cases where it won't help and might even harm, then you haven't applied it as a rule. And it has to work as a rule, otherwise herd immunity doesn't rise. So you get, there's certain situations where these rules really do apply, Um, how hospitals should do their budgets, um, how people should be paid or assessed. These are kind of, you know, you want standardization in certain ways. Um, So it is very tricky to both manage this kind of enterprise that is medicine, and also deal with the fact that clinicians actually, in order to provide good care, have to question the application of a rule in a particular case, you know, and, and again, this is exactly the, the question that's being raised by individual parents about vaccines, right? And it's why herd immunity comes up against that individual choice. The, the rule doesn't fit with the individual choice. Um, so you know, logically speaking, we have a problem <laughs> on just a high abstract philosophical level, but also on a practice level where they, they're not being given the tools, because it has become this rule-based system. Mm. So Tyriman brings in the the role of values and that you need to assess individual contingencies, but also um, Chris uh, Vorsfeld in our blog, um, and he's got a blog as well, has mentioned, and other clinicians and physiotherapists have talked about how sometimes they feel like they have to follow that rule against their better judgment. And so... That's the individual position yeah. that they find themselves in.
0: And and so what's the alternative view of, of rule utilitarianism? What's the how? What's the other way of viewing guidelines? If they're not rules, but rather, as described on the packet, that they are guidance tools by which to suggest ways of treating or, or investigating. M- my sense is, is that clinicians don't view them as rules. They're, they're sensible enough that judgment kicks in where they can view the patient. Or the person in the context of the guidance.
1: This is what Gabe and LeMay uh, wrote about um, very clearly and lots of people refer to their term mind lines right that they actually think of them more as mind lines. Um, and and again this is this is what's happening in practice. So it's those rules are not being applied as they're being designed. and one and one issue with the way they're being developed, insofar as they're being developed as rules, is that what you're trying to do then in developing them is to create the best rule. But they're not going to be used as rules. And they're not useful as rules. And <laughs> so developing them as rules seems misplaced. Um, and, and I do see work in develop, like, you know, uh, grade as a much less rule-based approach to developing guidelines. Uh, the Gin network has really put a lot of effort into the development itself being less rule based, so we're already starting to relax a bit on on how they get developed. But also, I think what what needs to happen is uh, is the guidelines need to be a living thing. They they need to be continuously shaped, and uh, so so more of a living resource than than anything rule like. And I think the more we, even even the way we present them to people, right? So while I've seen somewhere, you know, patients can go in and, and through the guideline kind of uh, dashboard, you know, they input their choices and their preferences and, and you guide them towards treatment path. And so, but even that cultivates the kind of approach to treatment that there is going to be one right path for you. And we will know it ahead of time by the choices you make. Whereas that's not, that's not how it works. (laughs) You start a treatment path and then you check in and then you adjust the treatment path and Mm -hmm. then you check in and then you adjust the treatment path. That's how medicine actually works. So the guidelines should work that way too. Um, And insofar as they do, great. Um, But I think uh, decision trees and branching off pathways um, is not going to be as useful when presented as a thing that's simply, okay, here's the thing. This presents the latest evidence. These are the things that you have at hand. And and then that's the end of the resource. Because that's not the end of the resource. Um, and rather than just going back and revising guidelines, I think the guidelines should just be continuously in process. And so clinicians then can tap into what's happening in the guideline right now. (laughs) What kind of input is going on? What's the latest evidence that hasn't been processed? You could also include that in, you know? And so it becomes then much more of a living resource where clinicians also contribute. They can guide the kinds of gaps that need to be filled by their questions, um, and also be actively involved in assessing that evidence and how that guideline is working. Um, This may not be too far from how some of them are already working, but I I do think this idea that a guideline should be a living process rather than a a thing that you follow.
0: So the problem with guidelines was there from the minute they were developed. I mean, at some point, I mean, they've obviously done good. So arsenic is no longer given for back pain because it's not on the (laughs) guideline. So so clinicians aren't dishing out poisons (laughs) to treat medically unexplained symptoms so that's a Mm -hmm. good feature they've done a good thing but is it the case that as we as medicine or healthcare has shifted perhaps the emphasis is more on the individual that they've become uh those limitations within you know standardizing care or the problem of standardizing care to the individual that's just become highlighted
1: it has um and you see it in in the science um and technology as well so uh well, first of all are you know increasing awareness of things like epigenetics and environmental causes and interactions um it, also the push towards personalized medicine um, and not not person-centered but personalized where it's actually based on the kind of genome profile and the you've really gone deep into the details of the individual on those levels in some ways those are reflecting a further focus on the individual but in other ways they're kind of a, it's kind of similar to, the, to using AI and machine learning in decision-making um, in clinical care, right? So there's this general idea that if we just accumulate enough data, then we can create a causal profile that will allow us to make predictions. And here we are right back into our, our old way of thinking of causality right? It is very much a lot of these efforts are still based very much on this idea that we can trace the cause and effect relationships, even in complex systems. We just need a supercomputer to do it. And uh, and enough data and enough articles and enough. But increasingly, they're finding that uh, you first have to make decisions about what data to include. <laughs> you first have to make decisions about which factors to <laughs> to analyze, um, even to understand how epigenetics works. Um, you can't, like we're talking generational differences across the board and minor influences that have big effects over time. And tracing these is, uh, is itself a, a complex process and it requires a lot of value judgments about what methods to use, where to focus, what evidence counts as evidence. And as long as all of that is still based on the idea that what we're trying to find are causes that lead us to effects so we can predict in this in this single case, We just have enough data about all the other cases or enough data about this single case that now we can make the prediction. Now we're there. We're at the level of certainty that we're looking for, right? I think as long as we're aiming for that, we're still going to miss out on the nuances that the clinician engages in their practice. Um, Because no matter how much data we might have on someone's genome, there's still epigenetics, there's still contextual factors, there's still going to be a need for a narrative and a dialogue and an adjustment and a reconsideration of how all of those causal factors might come together in this one instance. Because this is is what dispositionalism points out really nicely, is that once you bring all those causal factors into play, you have a you have a system of relationships where they, they pull and push at each other. They influence each other in that individual context in a unique way. And even that you at that time, right? I mean, we can, we can talk about the genome of an individual at this time. Does that tell us what they're going to be like in 10 years? Well, it depends on what they eat and how much exercise they get. <laughs> so it's, it doesn't give us that perfect causal profile that we're actually still looking for
0: yeah and so there's two things that the first thing i think i asked the same question of of, or i raised the same thing with rani in perhaps episode two where i said pretty much everything was medically unexplained at some point so so uh, is it the case that things which are currently medically unexplained Mm -hmm. back pain fibromyalgia ibs all that kind of stuff that given enough data and research and ai we will find they will be explained to to, you know to 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 some greater or lesser extent and i think pretty much you you touched on that, that unless the the ontological assumptions around causation change. We never really will, unless that changes in in the example of guidelines, if those kind of foundational views around causation don't change, then we'll, we'll just find ourselves in the same situation, same problem.
1: Uh, If I can draw a weird analogy, because I work in resilience theory, um, which is another place where uh, you have to deal with these kinds of causal factors that interrelate um, in very complicated ways and still make decisions. This is the thing, right? We might have all of this uncertainty. It doesn't mean we don't have to make a decision about what to do um and uh so we have to have something to, <laughs> to look at and hang on to at some point but resilience theory in ecology comes out of it's kind of a backlash against equilibrium theory right it's this idea that you know if you've got too many rabbits well then the wolves will eat them and then, you know those populations go back and forth and we always kind of come out back out at a at an equilibrium. But, ecologists uh, realize that that's not really what happens. That actually it's, there's a very complex relationship uh, around factors in, in an ecological area. And some things may grow quite a lot while other things influence each other on the side and it all gets very... So there's, there's something more like the whole system can survive, but it won't look the same. So so I think causal factors in something like medically unexplained symptoms can be, can be similar. We might find new ways to explain how those causal factors interact, we might find if we look at enough data that you can always find a pattern. <laughs> this is one thing about aggregating all the data, right? But also what's in that data itself, right? And how do we bring it all together? How do we, how do we assess all of those different factors if they're not just components in a single system? if they they actually influence the system in unpredictable and different ways. Um, how do we and then resilience theory is having a lot of trouble understanding how do you describe the system um without already imposing some kind of a it's this system as it exists now. And then okay, well how can it change and still be the same system? Um, and and health is kind of like mm. that in the sense like how different do you have to be from the disease profile to still have the disease? And when we only have a bunch of symptoms, that gets very fuzzy and difficult to determine. And that's why a single cause is so wonderful and reliable because, oh, you either have it or you don't. And the answer is simple, right? Um, but even if you have that simple single cause, you still don't always know how the, the pathology of the disease in that individual, right, or the prognosis of that individual is going to take a lot of other considerations into account than just that single cause. That just gives you a starting point, a point of certainty to launch from. And uh, so, I mean, a lot of medically unexplained some, uh, diseases have been separated out into categories Once in causes have been found, right? Because then we can link a category to a cause. And that just gives us a way, just a definitional enterprise for the most part. It gives us a starting point for how we can treat them. Um, so I think when one thing that the Cause Health Projects tried to say about medically unexplained symptoms and uh, especially syndromes. So you actually have a collection of symptoms that are grouped together, um, that we might be looking for the wrong kind of causal profile. So, So again, let's open up the idea of looking at the relationships between things rather than symptoms that cluster together. You know, it's... If we add in this different way of looking at causality, then yeah, we might still end up finding a cause. <laughs> it might be a different kind of cause than what we were looking for before. Um, but we're we still are going to be able to find causes. They still exist in dispositionalism. They just relate to each other and and uh, affect one another rather than just being a collection of uh, or a sequence of events. So one of the one of the principles of the way Cause Health went is that medically unexplained symptoms are partly unexplained because our usual ways of explanation can't handle them. Does dispositionalism explain them better? And th- this is the question, right? This is going to be the... It, it does offer a better way of understanding why these groups of symptoms might cluster together the way they do and yet be so different in the individual case. And they also... It also allows us to understand why certain treatment uh, approaches won't work for everyone. And this is one thing you're really finding in these medically unexplained categories is that uh, part of the conflict comes from some people respond well to some kinds of treatments and other people respond well to other kinds of treatments. But yet the entire category being grouped together is being judged as assumed to be, of course, they should be responsive to the same kind of treatment because they belong to the same category. And that, that's where the mistake kinds of lie in, right? So so disposition at least gives us a way to understand why they might belong to the same kind of category and yet respond differently to different treatment pro- uh, programs and approaches.
0: Yeah. If it is the case that dispositionalism gives us a better causal explanation for MUS, so if we had those better explanations could you then test it so you would then hope that if we better understand how Mm -hmm. a particular syndrome is developed or occurs in an individual we can then map a treatment to that but then are we just applying a randomized controlled trial it it seems like we're kind of taking a step forward but then taking a step back but but i suppose the proof is in the pudding so it it would have to be some consequence to, to this better understanding i people would get better faster and cheaper yep.
1: uh so two things uh so so first this is one thing where the book is really nice um especially matt and christina's back and forth in the chapters because you see this try. this is a test right and uh and the things the ways in which it benefited uh christina are different than just resolving her pain so first we had to reevaluate what counts as better <laughs> in that case, right? And that might be something we have to do is reevaluate what counts as if it's not going to be a cure your condition. We might have to reevaluate what counts as a treatment in some cases. Um, and the cause and effect kind of ontology lends us to assume that the only good treatment is a cure, right? It's the right kind of effect. And uh, there might be different ways of measuring effects. So that's that's one thing is that uh, we, we can kind of test dispositionalism as an approach And its outcome, but because it's going to be quite an individual experience. And this relationship between Matt and Christine was part of why it worked, right? So they worked together on this. There was a back and forth and a dialogue. That's not always going to be possible. It's also going to be very context specific as well. So not only is the patient unique, but also the the treatment and the whole way of planning the treatment becomes unique. And then now we're in the territory where it's very hard to measure with an RCT. (laughs) So so what dispositionalism does is take us away from the idea of control as an ideal. The, The cause and effect relationship puts us towards control. If we can isolate that cause and effect relationship, we can say definitively that it happens in every case. Where there is this cause, there is that effect. We've tested it against all the other cases by controlling for them. And that's our usual way of trying to identify them. But dispositionalism suggests we can't actually do that. Because as soon as we isolate the cause, we actually take away all the factors that affect it. And how it's going to make an effect. Or whether or not it's going to have an effect, right? So so by isolating it, we strip it of its causal power. In the in a unique individual, so researching in that way and confirming it as a theory actually won't won't be uh won't be possible in the usual ways. I think that its greatest impact is going to be in filling that gap in the practice of individual clinicians who use it. Um, so okay, so I've got this evidence of possible cause and effect relationships from RCTs. I've got this guideline about which treatments, when standardized, work best for the most people. And I've got this individual patient. How am I going to bring them all together? Dispositionalism gives you a way to do that. And that's that's where Matt's vector model is one way to do it, but also just being able to say, okay, so this statistical average represents one kind of cause that will affect this patient possibly in this way because I know this about them. It just gives them a way to relate these different kinds and levels of causal explanation together. Um, So it's ontological truth might be something that we can't test, but it's practical outcomes and the impact it has on our ability to reason through the kinds of evidence we have at hand. I think will demonstrate like that it is, it is effective as a, as a way of looking at practice. And it's just that process of integration yeah. is so hard and it gives a way to do that.
0: And I don't know how much you know about SCEDs or single case experiments or designs. It seems to be that they're one way of looking at these multifactors or properties.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, the, RCTs are no longer simply accepted as the gold standard. It's not the only way we do research anymore. Um, And even though they're the large-scale trials, we are learning and getting better at really attending to the other kinds of evidence that we can get uh, from observational trials, pragmatic trials. There's lots of good philosophical debate about what kinds of evidence they produce and where they can be useful too. Um, But the, the plurality of evidence is out there making it accessible in a way that it becomes a resource rather than either an imposition and an onslaught
0: of evidence.
1: <laughs> but at the same time, allowing clinicians to actively engage in that evidence and in its production. So you need something in between there um, where it's not too much, but yet they still have that chance to really be part of it. And those, and then those observations come back into play as well, right? So um, I'm not saying there's a simple way to do this but I do think that taking taking dispositionalism seriously really attends to the way that different causes might affect each other and the ways that we might look at different kinds of evidence for causes and weigh them against each other even though they are different kinds of evidence so how does you know our social class affect our ability to make decisions right now like these are Okay, so this might be pushing at you this way, or this is, you know, just just a way of attending at the way that different factors interrelate um, in the first place. I think already gives an opportunity for raising better questions.
0: So you you had the guideline challenge. This manifested your chapter, or rather, I'm not quite sure which came first, the chapter or the conference in Oxford in 2018 and probably the conference because you list some of the outcomes or kind of calls to action at the end of the chapter, some, a series of 11 kind of lessons learned that are described in the chapter. If I was going to ask you what would, if you were going to thread dispositionism through a guideline, or what would a you know, if we could kind of rewrite a guideline based on this different kind of theoretical framework, what would it look like? Would Mm -hmm. we still have RCTs in there? Or is it, as you say, its usefulness really comes by way of clinicians utilizing this this framework to to make judgments about people with evidence?
1: That's a good question. So what a guideline would look like I mean, I'm, I'm quite hooked on the idea of, like I said, a living resource that, uh, so thought of more as a resource rather than a rule, I, I think is, is the big shift there. Whether it should be a dispositionalist guideline is is a good question. So I, I think that the vector model gives us a methodology for how to, how to translate dispositionalism into a practice situation. And so, but it could be a method, right? It, it may or may not work. it's It's not going to work with every patient either. the other yeah, some patients really want to hear a cause and effect story <laughs> and and you know, can't blame them. So working through that kind of scenario might be a good method for how the resources within a guideline could be used. So, what are the different considerations that you want to ask? Uh, One thing about being an ethicist is I'm often accused of asking a lot of questions and never giving any answers, (laughs) but basically asking the right questions is the key to getting the right information, right? So, uh, so one thing the vector model gives you is a way to ask those questions. Okay. Here's all the possible influences and here's all the things we know. And then let's look at how they relate to one another. How do they push and pull against each other? How do we feel that they push and pull against each other? So I think in that sense, it gives us a methodology for asking those questions in a way that's different from adding the values in, you know, like, okay, here's all your options. Now, your values tell you which one is the correct one, right? And and that's often the way that values are added in at the level of guidelines, I find. So because the whole process then becomes a questioning process. And I think once you open, so this is where it, it is really great as an individual, methodology for how to deal with the clinical encounter because once you open up those questions to the patient um, as well they start thinking about their own condition in a different light and so it's not a I have a cause and I need the physician to give me something to (laughs) prevent its effect right Um, and then there's the hunt for causes in some cases the hunt for causes is not going to result in, in the end that you want. So you have to give them something else. They need an alternative. And at the very least, this method gives an alternative to people who aren't finding that causal solution um, to hang their hat on, right? As a guideline set up, whether we take it, you know, as the way of creating our institutional structures and, and creating rules and assessing evidence, right? Mm. Again, one thing it, it does do is we have to accept that we're not going to get Perfect evidence about the individual. And we're not going to get it from one source. And so, plurality of evidence becomes very important. And reassessment of evidence and its application in that context uh, becomes very important. So, if those two aspects can be built into guidelines, then I think that's good. I, I think that also reflects a need. Um, whether or not it's a dispositionalist thing or not. I just think these are... And for me, really, philosophically and epistemologically, it's about the relations between things. So uh, in other work, I've I've pointed out how the clinical encounter is very much a relational encounter, where it, it, it depends not only on who that person is and how you can assess them and who I am and how you can assess me, but about who we are in that encounter and how we both progress through that encounter. And so... The nice thing about the way the vector model has been employed and about dispositionalism is that it forcibly creates that relationship. You have to then relate and you have to bring yourself into play. So Karen um, is one of, Karen Engelbretson is one of our chapter authors, and she's been working uh, from a phenomenological point of view on this clinical encounter. And uh, one thing she does in her work is really forefront her impact on the situation. So a real person-centered kind of approach doesn't leave the doctor out either, right? They're they're a person too. And this is a personal encounter and it's a personal deliberation and it's a unique kind of engagement. And so you have to be able to work together and what the treatment plan that comes out of that is going to be might change over time. Your goals might change. You may not, you may leave cure might not be the goal, maybe something else is the goal. And then you can integrate that into play as well, right? But all of that contextuality has to be for a resource to be good for that. It has to be quite, it has to like, forget about certainty. Mm. (laughs) You know, first, we have to say there might be multiple answers to this question. Here are a range of possible answers. And here's some people who have tried this before. That's what clinicians really need. And so that's what a guideline should give them.
0: Yeah. What I think is great is that the idea that the vector model or dispositionism is both a useful framework for the clinician, but for the patient too, to begin to, to find some kind of way forward, given the uncertainty with things like mm-hmm. pain or medical pain symptoms.
1: One of the tricks of writing this book and working on the project is not being a clinician. And uh, I'm also I'm always extremely cautious about uh, imposing standards on others that are unobtainable. That <laughs> so you should do it this way, you know. As an outsider, I have everything to say, right? Um, but also on understanding how um, things actually come out in practice. So, so it might not have been the intentions of the EBM proponents in the beginning to create a bunch of rules that everyone would be pressured to follow. But that's just what comes out of the wash, right? You know, <laughs> is what happens after policy and institutionalization and everything else. And understanding that context is, uh, is really key before we go ahead and give advice. <laughs> so um, guidelines are tricky for me in that sense because they've been changing so much over the last several years. I, I don't have a lot of access to them as an outsider. So much of what I'm saying in the chapter is, uh, it's not speculative because I'm drawing on experiences that others have shared with me. And the one, the conference in, in Oxford was really lovely for that where I had some suspicions about guidelines And I wanted to see if they were the case. And lots of people wanted to talk about guidelines as as a problem. And so it was a really interesting bringing together of diverse frustrations and expectations um, and limitations uh, in what's happening in practice. And also some good, you know, solid theory. Nancy Cartwright spoke there as well about uh, how we can translate the results of a trial to a different context. Um, and we had some nice philosophy and, and political encounter all mixed in together. And it was a really, it was a really good experience in that sense. And it gave me this, this is what's kind of grounded the chapter in the sense that I'm thinking, you know, I'm, which guidelines am I talking about? None in particular, right? I, I don't pinpoint a single guideline. I don't, uh, I don't say that they're not doing the things That I suggest, because they are doing the things that I suggest in many different ways, or at least trying to accommodate the kinds of problems that clinicians have been raising. What I'm doing is trying to, if we push it a little further, Mm. you know, and we really think about those needs of the clinician, I really think the gap we've been talking about today is really important. That gap between the kinds of resources that you have, the kinds of positions that you end up being in when you're trying to bring those into play. And um, and I think we need a language to talk about that. And dispositionalism gives us that language. So I've tried to talk about how that gap could be covered by guidelines in the sense of being more of a resource kind of orientation.
0: Yeah, because even if the guidelines don't change, or let's just say, you know, they've this is as good as they're ever going to get, right? You know, Given the kind of framework by which they developed EBM, all that kind of stuff, dispositionalism gives us even if they didn't change it, it provides like a framework for them to be applied more effectively. I'm using kind of air quotes, but you know, optimally for the individual, or that for clinicians to better appreciate the role of judgment, or to be more critically reflective on on when judgment kicks in, or, or or when it fills that gap of uncertainty.
1: Yeah, it explains really well how judgment does that, and what the role of the clinician in bringing all that evidence together is. It's it's not an irrational process it's not about you know some kind of mythical clinical expertise or art of the of medicine that we master over time right So we' uh, the EVM proponents were like part of the problem with authority is the kind of mystery and it stops us asking questions, right you know you don't question authority. that's what authority is. It is the thing that you do not question. So when you're told this is the right way to do things and you're not given the reasoning behind it, I think that is very problematic. And we don't want to end up in that position, but also the clinical judgment that allows a doctor to decide whether to follow a guideline in this case or how it should be adjusted to that individual patient. It's not mysterious either. It's a reasoning process. We just often don't have the language to talk about how that reasoning gets done. And and I really think dispositionalism is giving us that language. Here's what we're doing. We're looking at how these causes are influencing each other. And, and the relationships between the knowledge that we have um, about the situation. And it's it's a rational process. Yeah.
0: Because guidelines were developed at a time when there wasn't the the, the research into things like expertise or clinical reasoning or the nature of what it is to be an mm. expert or what the nature of expertise are. So we have a, a better insight into how, how clinicians are balancing these different forms of knowledge and making judgments. So in the absence of that so it was all mystical and kind of dark arts and how to, if we haven't got guidelines how clinicians doing what they're doing it must be some kind of weird hidden secretive practice so that perhaps there was a fear to elevate judgment because at the time judgment was thought to be kind of dark and mystical and unknown but well, we know more now about it
1: we do we do and we're more we're more aware of it as a as a process and as a skill You know, their medical education has come a long way in understanding how physicians reason and how to bring that in line with education and the kinds of tools that they're given and uh, the kinds of resources that are created. Right. Um, So I guess I just there would be there should be really close alignment between that kind of reasoning and the kind of resources that they're offered So there's more push forward than it is a pushback against thing, right? So we're headed in the right direction. Let's keep going. Dispositionalism gives us another way to explain why this is the right direction. Um, Clinical experience, you know, the the reflections and feedback uh, that processes get from how people practice is already pushing us in that right direction. And I think these things are just dovetailing in a way that one is giving them the language to explain what they're already doing. So so I see this happening. I see this, like the, the clinicians and the, and the researchers who spoke at the guidelines challenge brought up all of these issues and they're not new issues to them. These are common frustrations that they're feeling and common ways they're trying to deal with them. You know, okay, how do we accommodate plural varieties of evidence in developing guidelines? You know, like the Gen Aid Working Group is working on that. This is a problem that's been acknowledged for a long time. And we're just, we're just offering another language and way to explain why it's a problem and how we can think of it um, in order to move forward with it.
0: So you wrote an editorial about the about the conference in the Journal of Evaluation and Practice or Evaluative Practice, Evaluation and Practice,
1: Evaluation and Clinical Practice, yeah, in
0: Clinical Practice. So I'll 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 link that because, really, because you really nicely kind of summarise the different speakers and the positions that they took, and then as we mentioned those. 11 kind of lessons learned and, and, a, and a little bit of commentary about those. So I'll link those on the show notes.
1: Okay. Thank you. Yeah. 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 That conference was really great. Um, yeah. It was a very interesting experience bringing everybody together like that.
0: Yeah. So your speculation was quite accurate. <laughs> so you were speculating that there are these issues with guidelines and others might share them. And, you know, whatever, hundred people rock up to, to, to Oxford sharing similar views. So your intuition was, was accurate then.
1: It's always good to know. <laughs> um, but that comes from just looking at the at the the like what is a guideline in the first place? We're trying to make a rule. Well, once we have a rule, then how do we adjust it in practice? And and even like the, the nice thing, um Zahaslan Peterson pointed out such a nice example in the conference that if we did apply the rule, what would happen? And and the practical consequences are you know, impossible to deal with. Right. Every, every GP applying the rule perfectly would have to work over time. And, and so we, we just, why pretend that we live in a world where we can create such rules and apply them equally in each, each situation. And this is happening as much as clinicians and, and, and a lot of, uh, a lot of the clinicians we did talk to, we did get uh, disagreement. We didn't get agreement and sympathy from everybody. A lot of people say, well, we're already doing that in practice. And I don't see why we need a theory to, <laughs> to say why we're doing that. This is what we have to do in practice. This is just how it works. EBM works that way already. Um, but in contrast to that, you have, for example, in Norway, while we were there, there was just this increasing public management of the health system, and uh, some of our network members were working directly against this kind of approach in their institutions, where there was uh, an attempt to just standardize things, like how much time how much time you have with a patient, which is a problem worldwide right now. It's standardized down to such a small amount of time for most people that they can't do the kind of work we're asking them to do with dispositionalism. There's no time for a vector drawing. <laughs> it's like, I need your symptoms so I can plug them in and get the, okay. And that's, you know, so there's as much as it's happening in practice, it's also not happening in practice. And so I think further pressure and highlighting where it is working better, where these effects are, where people are taking more time and asking different kinds of questions and using different forms of evidence in their practice, and they're getting better results. I think the more we can highlight that, the more we can break down the the policy level assumption that we're going to save money by standardizing more. And, and I think this, this, this is something that's happening, not just in medicine, but in multiple sectors, that the idea that we can just, you know, the better thing to do is to be rule utilitarian and find the perfect rule. And everybody just do that actually doesn't economically work out and it doesn't work out for care. And clinicians are noticing that where they're pressured into those situations and we need more strong scientific arguments. For why those policies are problematic because the way clinicians feel isn't cutting it. <laughs> so, you know, philosophers get behind it. Uh, policymakers use dispositionalism to explain why, you know, longer time or different standards might be applicable. Um,
0: is, is it's it interesting that there are some clinicians at the conference, I'm sure others, that just felt that this is already built into EBM. Like it's just leave it up to the common sense of clinicians and I can I can kind of see that, but it is a bit silent on in terms of judgment and how that how judgment kind of fits into EBM. That it's kind of mentioned and but the emphasis over the years has largely been about the research. You know, thinking about the Venn diagram when you've got you know clinical judgment, research, and patient values. It's it's often I mean, there's a bit more now talked about about judgment, but largely the emphasis is on the research circle of the Venn diagram and and the judgment bit is just you kind of left to your own judgment. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and uh, leaving things implicit is the surefire way to continue with the status quo. And again, this is in all areas of life, right? The, the more you assume that everybody already knows what they have to do, and you don't make it explicit as part of the policy and part of the, the, the said out loud approach to medicine. Uh, the more you leave people alone, and they and they bear that responsibility for figuring out what they're supposed to do alone, and they bear it, they they they're feeling it. One thing that's come out of the COVID crisis is the importance of on the ground thinking and clinical judgment is is gaining a bit of ground um, publicly, right? It's something that people are talking about. That a lot of the really interesting innovations or in care and and dealing with the crisis have come from immediate emergency based interactions between doctors and clinicians and nurses hierarchies have taken a bit of a hit because everyone's mm. just dealing with the crisis and so you see these stories coming out about uh there was something on frugal innovations on twitter today but also um on uh, how you know certain ventilator systems became used and uh, created on the spot and or how certain treatment Procedures became changed and improved on the spot, and how that got communicated. In different ways. And, and one comment that I read is like, this is what medicine is supposed to be like. This is this is it. You know, this is all of us. We're working together and we're really coming together and we're creating a better way of caring for these people. We're tackling this problem in a really direct and forthright way. And they want to be engaged. And uh, you know, you don't want a pandemic to have to create that situation. That's the kind of energy that I'd love to see in a guideline, right? <laughs> <And then> it's <laughs> like we're all we're all really trying to tackle this problem and find the best way forward because clinical judgment, it's not, the judgment doesn't just come into play in clinical practice. It comes into play when we choose our methods and research. It comes into play when we assess the participants in research, when we control for certain factors, when we decide which cause is going to be the cause, when we decide what counts as a good treatment and an endpoint. These are all decisions that we make that have to do with what we think of as health what kinds of values we have as a society, what kinds of priorities we think we should have. And those just to deny that, to say that those decisions only come into play at one part in the medical process is, is is problematic because it puts all of the weight on that person making that decision. And it's not their decision that's deciding. It's it's an accumulation of decisions and values. And everyone is part of that process. Uh, and they're not they're not alone. So integrate that, right? I I think some transparency about the role that people really play in research and and that that's okay. That's just the way it is. As long as we can talk about it and deliberate it and do it better next time, you know, then we will continue making progress. But as soon as we say, uh, everybody already knows that this is what we do, Um, and then I get policies coming down that restrict you to 15 minutes with your patient. And I'm like, yeah, but when you're physically (laughs) restricted from enacting what you know to Mm. be true, you still have a problem. And, uh, and so I, I think we need to look at, um, how to bring what everyone already knows out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Explicate it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Make it, make it explicit, you know, uh, these are not not physicians complaining about being rushed in their day Mm. or overworked. These are physicians who realize and recognize that we cannot apply the standards of care that they're being expected to apply with the resources that they're being given. And uh, and when you have that kind of conflict, uh, the more you just leave it on the individual judgment Mm. to decide whether that guideline is... No, no, it's got to go back up. It's not their responsibility to make that decision. It's everyone's responsibility to give them the resources to make that decision well.
0: Samantha, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me. Uh, it was really nice to be able to chat and uh, and to talk about some of these ideas.
0: Just to say, you know, reading the chapter, no one really knows where guidelines or the assumptions which are built into guidelines, they kind of just appear and they're taken as truth or fact and these are authoritative pieces of knowledge that we must all kind of follow so i think the chapter really for me just made me think so much more about where they came from the assumptions which lie within them the process you know by which they're developed so again if nothing more it makes people much more critically aware of that as as a source of, of knowledge or information
1: Well, that is amazing, because that's exactly all I hoped to do, right? Of course, raise questions without answering them. Um, (laughs) It's my specialty.
0: (laughs) Like any good philosopher or ethicist, I
1: guess. (laughs) (laughs) I try every day. Um, uh, But also just this idea that there, there are different kinds of guidelines out there and different uses for them. And if we can kind of look at, okay, what kind of guideline is this? How do they expect me to use it? Mm. Is that the way it should be used? And just those kinds of conversations, once they get started, we might have multiple kinds of guidelines, right? Some of them might be rules and some of them might be resources and, you know, but just the idea that there's there's a need for different kinds of things Mm. um, in different situations you have to critically engage them in order to see whether they're doing what they're supposed to do.
0: (laughs) Have another weekend, thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having us on.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.